I remember when I first got my first copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some of you read that book, some of you haven't. It's a great book. I think I was probably not much older than the young ladies sitting there together in the middle, 12, 13 years old when I got my first copy. Fox's Book of Martyrs is, eh, we'll say historical-ish, retelling of the martyrs of the church. And it tells the stories of how they died. Right? It tells Perpetua and Felicity. It tells of the early saints, Polycarp and others, of how they died for their faith. And as I read that and continued to read through church history, it's a young one, not very good books, but just reading them nonetheless, began to realize that the later martyrs, the martyrs in our tradition, the martyrs of the Reformation, were a different category to kind of process. Because the early ones, Felicity's namesake, they perished at the hands of the Romans. The pagans killed them. And I understood that because pagans hate Jesus. Jesus tells us that. The world hates me, therefore they're going to hate you. They kill me, therefore they're going to kill you. It makes sense. I got that as a young man. But the reformers, the reformed martyrs were a different category altogether because they suffered and they died at the hands of people who claimed to be Christians. And that was hard for my little brain to understand. How is it that Christians could kill Christians? And what is it that is so worth dying for? That you're willing to stand up to the death to other people who say they're Christians. What is worth it? Again, learning, I think Calvin, you know, Calvin had a a seminary. It was not massively large, but a seminary nonetheless. And uh, their mission was really to to move to the west out of Switzerland and kind of into France. And the life expectancy of the graduates was anywhere from six to nine months. It was a disease that killed them. It was French Christians that killed them and Spanish Christians that killed them. And I thought, my goodness, what is it that's worth dying for? What is it that separates those that call themselves Christians from others that call themselves Christians? What is worth that much of a sacrifice? Brothers and sisters, when we get to Galatians chapter 3 here, verse 10 and following, we find the answer. We find what Paul would be martyred for. Now by pagans, but he was almost martyred like 13 other times by the actual Jews themselves, right? They beat him, they stoned him, they left him for dead. They did terrible things to him, all for the content of these brief Verses. This is the lightning rod. This is the great divider. This is the content that reshapes the church. First thing we're going to see is that righteousness, perfection, holiness, whatever you want to call it, cannot 
be attained by works of the law. Righteousness cannot be obtained by works of the law, at least not for us. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All right, so Paul builds an argument here. He's, he's preparing us to understand why Jesus is so important. That's why this section is so big, right? <laughs> he builds us to the end. Where it's like, oh, by the way, Jesus is really important. And in order to see how important Jesus is, you have to have a starting point. And the starting point that he builds with is uh, our interactions with one another and our interaction with the Lord. And those interactions fall under the jurisdiction of this thing called the law. And another way to look at that is God's divine instruction manual for life. Right? It's, it's his designed plan for the way that I am supposed to operate. Right? You remember uh, last time you bought a car? Right? Now, I know there are a couple of people in here who probably actually do this, but how many of us actually sat down and read the instruction manual front to back, or the operator's manual for your car, and then go, oh, it says I should change my brakes at this mileage, and I should change my oil at this mileage, and I should change this at that, and I should, now, again, I know there are a couple in here, it's a bad illustration because they actually do that. But for most of us, we've never followed the instruction manual for any vehicle we've ever owned. Right? The operator's manual is something that we kind of smirk at and call out when something doesn't operate correctly or that light on the dashboard comes on that is mystifying. It looks like a tornado. We have no idea what it means, right? <laughs> I have no idea what that is. Quick, get the manual. I don't even know where the manual is. Go online. <laughs> Google it. Figure it out what it is. Right? Our operator's manual for our cars are very simple. And yet we ignore those. <laughs> we've never followed them. We've never kept them perfectly, except for maybe two of us in here. We don't, we don't do that, right? Our operator's manual is something that we've kind of passed by and we've violated and we know that we have. We've had that one time we forgot to change our oil and we drove for 9,000 miles and oh no, it was the end of the earth. Here Paul begins his argument building to show us the value of Jesus by starting out and explaining the size and the scope of our operator's manual. It's actually, interestingly, probably not that much different in size from the one for my car. Uh, It's a bit more dense in the pages, but size-wise, not that much different. But it's so impressively comprehensive. It speaks to every facet of human relationship. Every facet of divine interaction. It speaks to every way that I interact with my wife, or my children, or my parents, or the world around me, or creation itself. It speaks to, should I recycle or not? It does answer that question in some sense. But interestingly, the problem with this instruction manual is not the manual itself, it's with me. Because the second half of this verse, cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law, right? Oh, wait, no, I missed a word, didn't I? I skipped it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
You see, the problem with this is that this law of God, this rule of righteousness, this covenant of works is an all or nothing deal. It's all or nothing. There are only two options, right? It is a light switch, not a dimmer switch. The light is either on, there is current flowing, or it is off, there is not. It's not like those fancy ones where you go, oh, it's mood lighting, right? It, it, it is one or the other. You either keep the instruction manual perfectly, or James tells us when you violate one part, you violated it all. Well, that would be a problem, I guess. To violate one part of it is to violate all of it, except for the fact that what are the consequences? It's not like my car, right? I forgot to change the oil that one time. I think my engine will be okay. Here we find out the problem is that when we violate that one tiny little portion of the law is that we are, that word, cursed. Now, I can, I, I can honestly say I, I don't know the last time I used the word cursed in a sentence unless it was talking like Dora the Explorer and the cursed pyramid they have to go find or something, right? Some pirate thing where it's a cursed treasure. Or something. We don't use that type of language anymore, do we? The idea of a curse being brought down upon you. I think that's probably because we're so scientific. We don't think of evil in those terms. We don't think of trial or difficulty in those terms. (laughs) But what this means is that everyone who does not keep the law of God perfectly brings upon them the curse of God. His displeasure... His working against you. I was listening to a song last week. Great lyric in it. If you can't keep it all together when God is on your side, how in the world do you expect to be able to do so when He's not? If you can't keep the law perfectly... When he's on your side, how in the world do you think your standing is going to improve the second his curse comes upon you? The the second his wrath is brought to bear, the second his favor is taken away, righteousness is unattainable for us by works of the law. You violate one, you've violated them all. Now, I would say most of us are in this building because we believe that very truth, right? This is one of those great sermons where, in theory, you could all sit in the choir loft, right? Which is where actually you are sitting. That's the correct place for the choir loft. Preaching to the choir because you all already hold this. But this is interesting that one of those things that, though we hold it academically, we are so quick to still kind of fudge on this, don't we? To know that we believe it here, but then in practice, to not really hold to it. I mean, how often do we find ourselves in our inner monologue mimicking the Saturday Night Live character of, I'm good enough. I'm valuable enough. People like me. I'm okay. I have value. And to, in our inner monologue, connect our meaning, our identity, our worth, our value, who we are, to what we do. (coughs) 
I mean, we all sit here and go, well, Michael, I understand that. I mean, of course we do this. I mean, we're humans. You want to watch this? I mean, I can tell you right now how to do it. I don't do this, but I can tell you how to do this. In front of a mother, insult her child and compliment the one next to it. Now, you might end your life. I mean, this is like playing with a bear. I mean, understand. But in doing so, you see the heart of humanity come out. It is so easy for mothers to find their value, their meaning, their identity in the successes of their children. I have a dear friend, dear friend, who's a college athlete, who's a fearsome baseball player. I mean, brilliant baseball player. And he and his wife had three children. The first one was an art film major. (laughs) The second one I's never played a sport ever. I think she was a Japanese major. The third one was one of the funniest people I've ever met. And I don't know if he could hit the back wall with a tennis ball were he to try. And when I met that family, I love them dearly. They love me. I mean, they are dear family. His children were in middle school and dad was wrestling through, interestingly, his own identity. Because he, the consummate athlete, did not have a child who could run a 40-yard dash and not pass out. (laughs) And interestingly, the fault was not with his children. The fault was with him. His meaning, his value, his personhood was connected to some form of work, some form of activity, in this case, some form of genetics, which we have very little control over still. That's going to change, but still. You see, we do this all of the time, though we are in this building because we hold to this point, righteousness cannot be attained by works of the law. Pragmatically, our daily life is totally different. Those of you that are married, think about how you interact with your spouse. How often do you show them favor when they are behaving well and disfavor when they do not? That's works, my friends. It's the same thing. You're applying it to them. Their value is determined by their external righteousness. It's taking this works principle and applying it too much and and creating value determined by the perfection of the works of the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And brothers and sisters, we stand, you and me together, we stand in deep, deep trouble apart from Jesus. The Holy Spirit is wise. He knows our hearts and he knows that one of the ways that we try to get out of trouble is by compromise. Right? One of our 
Uh, my favorite confessions of sin that we use, it says, we mistake repentance for the promise of abstaining from future sin. We confuse sorrow for sin with, I won't do it anymore. Those are not identical. We compromise. And the second thing we see here is that hybrids are not okay. Right? And I'm not meaning hybrids in terms of cars. I'm talking hybrids in terms of faith. Because the Holy Spirit knows and Paul knows one of the ways that we then seek to soften the trouble that we are in in the works principle is to then try to merge faith and works. To say, if my works aren't good enough to get me out, well then I'll merge my faith and my works together. It keeps me in play. It keeps my actions to have meaning. It keeps me able to judge others, but still brings in the faith idea. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You can't be good enough. Why? Well, because the way that we are justified before the Lord, the righteous live by, not the law, they live by faith. They live by grasping and apprehending the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. They live by believing in the promises of God. They live believing that the Lord will provide for them and change them. And he continues and says, oh, by the way, some of you will then try to fudge on this. You'll try to cheat and you'll try to say, well, I'm a really good person and that's good enough because I have faith. Which is actually no different. The law is not of faith. These are Venn diagram circles that don't overlap in the middle. Right? There are Venn diagram circles where one is that way and one is that way, and there's nothing that bridges between. You can't have faith and works. That's not going to get you into heaven. Now, faith will always produce works. We have whole books of the Bible about that. Major point, don't minimize that. But it's not the works that get you into heaven. It was actually in terms of Reformed history that This is what our brothers and sisters died for. It's actually the second point to say that it's actually a hybridization, which is not acceptable. To merge these things, to say that it is my good works and God's good faith that gets me into glory and I am all right. And it's not acceptable. Righteousness cannot be obtained through the law. Well, how can it be obtained? How how can I get myself into heaven? Well, that's terrible language. We're going to change that. How, How do we make it to glory? How do we get out of this dire situation that we are in? How do we think differently about our world, feel differently about our world? How do we behave differently in our world? Well, Scripture answers. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay, so we we get out. We're, We're getting out from under the trouble by becoming a curse for us. Righteousness cannot be obtained through the law 
It's obtained through Christ. And again, this is one of those points that uh, sometimes are a bit difficult to preach on because this is what we've been taught since we were like this big, many of us. And praise God, this is the big story. But I would encourage you momentarily, just in the brief time that we have left, to pause and to consider what this means. That Christ redeems us by becoming a curse for us. Becoming a curse for us. All right, and we're, we're going to step in just momentarily to kind of get ourselves emotionally primed just a little bit to understand some of the depth. We're not going to get all of it, but some of the depth of what this means. And for that to happen, I need you to step back into middle school. Many of you are like, oh no. <laughs> Out of all of the times in my life, don't make me go back to middle school. That's actually kind of the point. Right? You remember the feelings of isolation. You remember the overwhelming insecurity. You remember living in fear. I think all middle schoolers do. I think, I think it's just part of the DNA of who they are. You remember the feeling, getting your feelings hurt because your friends rejected you. Maybe you had a better middle school years than I did. Maybe I'm just showing myself here. Maybe, maybe I, I, I did not pause and consider that fact. It could be a, I had rotten middle school. You all had a very different experience. But you remember what it's like to feel rejection. And middle school is one gigantic period of rejection. Rejection over the clothes we wear. Now, I went to a school that had uniforms. It was awesome. So then it was like the shoes you had. right? Rejection over how fast you grow, whether you hit your growth spurt early or late. Are you the puny kid? I was. Rejection over how we speak. Rejection over what culture we consume. Rejection over what parts of life or development or puberty we know about. Rejection after rejection after rejection. That's why so many of us are like, I would go back to any part of my life and live it over again. I would never face middle school. And so it was because it's rejection after rejection after rejection, right? We loathe those years. And friends, you need to understand that is a just tiny little feeling, tiny little feeling of what the second person of the Trinity felt when he, in obedience to his Father, stepped inside time and space, stepped inside humanity. And that that is just mind-blowing. The one who created time, the one who invented space, would inject himself into it. He, He holds all matter together, and he is, in some sense, matter. And then, in becoming part of his people, becoming part of the Jewish nation, they would reject him. Pause momentarily. Just think about what it was like for him to go to church every Saturday. As they look for the Messiah and reject him in their midst. (laughs) Guys, I'm here. The one you've been waiting for for thousands of years. I'm in your midst. And just a few short years later, they would kill him and mock him in the process. 
Save yourself if you can, king of the Jews, you rotten Messiah. Spit on him and shame him. The rejection he stepped into on purpose. The curse, and that's just the curse of people. That's not even dealing with the curse of God. A perfectly powerful God, perfectly just, perfectly creative in His wrath, pours it out on the cross. A cup of wrath that He consumes in its entirety. Again, it hurts our feelings now when our friends reject us. How do you think it feels to be rejected by God? To have His anger poured out upon you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And there's an element here that we oftentimes don't pick up on as much either, and the idea of shame. Right In the ancient Near East, in this time, a cross would have been not just the most horrifying way to die that I can possibly imagine. I mean, I have my list of ways I don't want to go. Cross is at the top. It, it is absolutely the worst thing I can conceive of it as awful but further than that is that in that time cross had the stigma of shame like no other we don't have a great translation for this today the best illustration might be a convicted pedophile Someone who is universally hated in the culture. Despised. Disgusting. And yet Jesus does that. Becomes that. On the cross, on the tree, taking the guilt, taking the shame, taking the breadth and the depth of the judgment of God so that we do not have to. So that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So redemption, so forgiveness of sins might be found. This is a story we know well. It's our story. This is our family lineage. This is our DNA. This is who we are. But how easily does it grow old for us? How easily is this reduced simply to an intellectual principle and not radically rocking our insides? How easily does this become dry? I 
And you see, this actually works backwards. As we, as we begin to see this curse as small, as we begin to see this redemption as small, we begin to see his victory as small. Who cares? I won't say from that big of a deal. I mean, it's not earth shattering. Actually, it was earth shattering. I mean, the whole point of it. That's exactly what it was. And I love that how Paul ends this section in saying, look, Jesus accomplishes something magnificent. He frees you from the curse. He became that for you. He pays the wrath of God on your behalf. He, he redeems you, but doesn't stop there. He gives you all of the blessings of God. And you see at the very end, I love this, so that we might receive the promised spirit. So that we may have victory now. So that we live not in a world constantly battling curse, but that we live in a world filled with the Spirit. Made alive inside. Having the power of God reorienting our mind and our heart and our hands. Being reshaped. And I would issue a simple challenge. Well, it's two parts really. For some of us, this has been the DNA of our story for as long as we can remember, or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, 70 years. But we know our hearts. We know the book of Hebrews that we are prone to hardening, prone to drifting, prone to callous. Right? I used to play guitar at length in youth ministry land, and all of those muscle memory created magnificent calluses on the tips of my fingers. Couldn't use a smartphone because there's no anything in it. It wasn't alive. Sometimes we run risk that we do the spiritual disciplines. We come to church. We interact with the people of God. And in doing so, instead of keeping our hearts tender, we create those calluses like the heels and balls of our feet on our heart. And we come to a table like this and our hearts are unfeeling as fat. One of my favorite verses. Now for others of us, and again, recognizing some of us, we think this is our story, but in the reality of the matter, when we come to think about it, when our head hits the pillow at night, we know it's not. We know that we've said, well, this is what Christianity is. But we know when we're honest, deep down inside, we know this isn't who we are. Your challenge is different. Because for you, it's not an issue of having callous on your heart. It's having a dead heart and needing a new one. For you, it's an issue of not just simply seeking renewal and restoration by the Lord. It's seeking resurrection by the Lord. That you might find life in Christ Jesus. And the sweet promise is this. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. He stands ready to help. The Lord stands ready to help. Let's pray.
our Father and our God. The great sacrifice of Christ is far greater than what we can begin to wrap our minds around. I can't think of the sacrifice of a child at all, much less a eternally begotten one stepping inside time and space and humanity. It, it is incomprehensible. But yet that little portion that we can grasp crushes and remakes our soul. Forgive us for our hardness. Forgive us for our callousness. Forgive us for the deadness of our hearts. Lord, we pray for those in here that are particularly hardened and ask that You would give Your Spirit now to soften calloused hearts. Lord, we know there are some in here that need not just softening, they need resurrection. They need a new heart to be made alive in Christ and we pray You would now open their eyes that they would see. Fill them with Christ. That you would help us in our infirmity and give us victory in the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.